Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Logicast. We've made it into double figures. Uh, finally, Logicast seems to be coming of age. Um, I'm Carl Robinson. I'm joined today by my colleague, John. How are you doing today, John? I'm cold. I'm so cold. <laughs> it is a little bit cold at the moment in the UK. We've actually had a light dusting of snow yesterday. Nothing compared to uh, what our colleague, our esteemed colleague has had in the Alps. Uh, but uh, certainly enough, I do have a snowman on the end of my driveway at the moment. Not built by me, I hasten to add. But uh, yeah, you get some <laughs> you snow sure? up your way as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A, a light dusting. Enough to keep the kids happy, at least. And enough to the... make it really funny watching the cats try and avoid getting wet on it. And did uh, did you build a snowman for the kids? No. Oh, the wife jolly. tried to this morning with um with the small one and he just kept destroying it so oh, <laughs> that well, ended fair enough. yeah well it's, it's the thought that counts i suppose <laughs> so anyway uh welcome to logicast episode 10 uh if you're new to the podcast uh, every week i curate a list of aws news uh, which gets distributed in an email news roundup and john and i uh, handpick uh, a selection of those articles that we're just going to talk about in a little bit more detail so um We've got another few news articles to talk to you about this week. And the first one of those um, is um, an announcement from reInvent. Yes, it did finish about a week and a half ago, but we're still seeing announcements. Uh, even still this week, we're still seeing the announcements and the, uh, the talk and the opinion about the announcements. This is one of the early announcements made at reInvent this year about um, blue-green deployments for MySQL on Aurora and RDS. So before we talk about the, the feature, John, it's probably worth just describing a bit about what blue-green deployments are for any listeners who don't know. Um, and then we can talk about um, what how that works on, on Aurora and RDS. Yeah, sure. So uh, you paint your servers different colors. No, you don't really. Um, <laughs> I didn't think there were any servers it. anymore. I thought this was a <laughs> serverless episode. Well, Aurora's serverless. It's close enough. There's still servers somewhere. You just have to worry about them. Uh, right. So blue-green. Sometimes it's called canary as well. It can be called that. Um the idea being canary in the coal mine, right? Uh, what you do is you have two complete copies of your infrastructure. And I'll touch on why this is a problem in a minute. But you have two complete copies of your infrastructure running um, the same, right? One of them is, is running and taking production traffic. And one of them is just mirrored from that one taking production traffic. What you do is you make your update to the one that's not taking production traffic. I think sometimes that's called the green one. The green one is the new one and the blue one is the existing one. Particularly in this example, the green one is the um, the new one. So you make your changes to the green one, be that config or code base or data or whatever. And then you shift traffic onto the green one, leaving the blue one as it was. So it's sitting, old state, quite happy, right there, lovely. And if there's a problem with your change on the green instance, you can roll back to the blue instance pretty quick. You know, usually it's within a few minutes or so depending on kind of the technology and how you've got it set up. Slightly more advanced setups of blue-green deployments, hence the canary, is you do the change to the green instance and then you move a small percentage of traffic to that. I mean, lambdas support this through code deploy quite nicely. So you move sort of 5 or 10% to it and then wait for an amount of time, 10, 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes, to see if there's an error. And if there isn't an error, then you move the rest of your traffic over and then you sit there and monitor it a bit longer. And if there's still no errors, then you go, yeah, great, this is a lovely release. We like this one. And then your green instance becomes your blue instance. And your old blue instance is brought back up to uh, being in line with your new blue instance. So you just colour them in differently. 
like I say, Lambda does this quite nicely through code deploy. Uh, it's a very nice feature, um, particularly for production deployments. And what this is doing is doing it for RDS with MariaDB or Aurora MariaDB. So it doesn't look like it does Postgres. And that makes sense because it's doing the replication using bin log replication, which obviously Postgres doesn't have. So that sort of makes sense. So you can't use this if you're an Aurora um, Postgres customer. Sorry, you just can't. But if you're a MySQL user, happy days, you can do this. What this is doing is this is running two full copies of your database, which you have to pay for, which is kind of the problem I have with this. With something like the Lambda blue-green deployments, because Lambdas A, don't have a standing cost, and B, deploy in seconds, it just brings a new one on and leaves the old one there, and then it kills off the traffic to the old one. Well, that's fine, because it doesn't have a standing cost. Databases do have a standing cost, even serverless ones. You are paying for them to exist. So that's kind of my problem with this. But other than that, this is quite cool. However, and I think, again, I'm going to misquote Corey Quinn here. If you have the money to pay for two full copies of your database, you don't need this because you're doing this anyway yourself. It's just, I suppose, taking away the need for someone like me to build it and giving it to you in the console. So that's kind of what it's doing. Just abstracting a little bit more management. Yeah, more of the undifferentiated heavy lifting taken away from the customer, as Amazon likes yeah. to keep saying they do. And I suspect they're now calling it blue-green deployments rather than canary deployments because uh, canary deployments remind us of a history of animal cruelty, um, which, uh, <laughs> of course, is uh, not very woke. Um, so uh, <laughs> perhaps we shouldn't <laughs> be reminding ourselves of that. Um, and there's yeah, a couple maybe. of other articles, um, a couple of other announcements that were made at the tail end of this article around the... Um, RDS optimized read and writes um, as well um, to to improve the performance. Did you spot those? I did. I didn't read them. I did spot that ye that there's an error, which is fun. In the article, <laughs> yeah. RDS optimized writes and RDS. Oh no, so it's RDS optimized reads twice to provide higher write throughput. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a nice smelling mistake. I did yeah. have a look at the bottom of um, the Aurora fast database cloning, which is quite cool. Um, because again, what the what the author is saying here is because this isn't available for Postgres, uh, AWS is suggesting because you can't do it with Postgres, use fast database cloning and do it yourself. So it's it's one of those instances where they've kind of got halfway and sort of gone, well, this is too hard for us to do the next bit, or maybe it's a feature two, feature th release two, release three feature. Um, but here's like a workaround for the time being. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so that's uh, blue-green deployments for MySQL on Aurora and RDS. So let's move on to the next article, um, which is um, about uh, Application Composer, um, a new low-code tool for building serverless apps. So uh, all of this low-code, no-code movement is really gathering a pace. Um, so uh, what do you know about Application Composer? Only what our friend uh, Werner Vogels has told us. <laughs> I wonder how many shirts he was wearing in this keynote. <laughs> how many changes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as you say, I'm a big fan of low code and no code. In spite of the uh, the the good giggle we have at Kelsey Hightower's um, no code repo, it's how do you contribute? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, I've not used App Composer, but I with the number of times I've had to put together. 
uh, event-driven architectures without something like this, I can certainly see the benefits of this. Right. So this is a drag-and-drop editor. So you've got a nice GUI, lovely and pretty. You don't have to write lots of JSON, which is horrible, or YAML, which basically wears the tab key on your keyboard out for you. Just so much white space. Um, you just drag, drop. I want this thing to go here and that thing to go there, and bang, 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 and they all talk to each other. That's great. Obviously, AWS isn't the first of the party with this as a concept. I mean, there are others. Make.com, formerly Integromat, is the one that comes to mind. There's loads of them out there, though, that do this, that you just have these workflows that you, um, you know, I, I want to do this, drag it onto the onto the canvas, put some credentials in. I want it to then make a CSV, so you tell it how to do that, and so on and so on. So the amount of code that you're writing is quite limited, and you're not having to worry about transitions and difficult API calls and work it how to do that and authentication and, and so on. Yes, you do have to do that, but you just kind of put like the creds in and the system's doing it for you. This is also isn't AWS's first stab at a GUI editor for this sort of thing. Because I don't think it was reinvent last year, but it was not that long after last year's reinvent that they um updated the step functions workflow editor so that you could do it through a GUI. Um, because again, previously you had to do it through uh, state, <coughs> excuse me, state transition language, which is like a, a JSON derivative. Um, it's JSON plus a few other bits. So you had to do it in, in that. And then they came out with, um, you know, a GUI to do it, a drag, drop, drag, drop, drop. Oh, brilliant. Wonderful. Except where you want to start subbing in variables for different environments. So I suspect this is going to have the same problem where it's great for getting going, great for proving, proving a concept, and it just starts to fall over when you need to make it production ready, when you need to start you know, being able to lift it and move it around and say, yes, I want you to talk to this queue or a queue, but the, the queue itself is different. That kind of thing is where I think this will start to fall over. But generally, this is a good thing because as as our good friend Werner said, is it Werner or Verger? Werner. It's definitely Werner. not Verga. <laughs> Spit my tongue out. Um, as 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 their CTO, let's just go with that. Said the barrier to entry for building event-driven serverless applications for non-cloud engineers, for people that aren't me, aren't you, haven't been doing this forever, is really high and it's really intimidating. Yes, the JSON isn't that complicated, but the way you've got to think about things is really different for most developers. Um, so this is good because this is lowering that barrier to entry. Yes, it's going to have teething problems. Yes, it's going to have pain points when you try and productionize something, which is sort of to be expected. And to be honest, I don't mind that because it gets more customers coming our way because we can help with that. But that's kind of, yeah, generally this is good. This is definitely a move in the right direction. So I did notice the uh, that they say there's they describe it as an escape hatch, hmm. um, so that you can create code in um, the drag and drop editor, but then you can actually export it um, to use in your whatever IDE you're you're working in. So I guess you could just use it as a bit of a shortcut. So rather hmm. than you know composing your entire app um, you know, using this tool, um, you could potentially use it as a shortcut for writing chunks of code that you can then dump into. Uh, other blocks of code that, uh, that exist for your application. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's shortcutting around. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's shortcutting around. So 
when I do these sorts of things, I tend to, particularly step functions, I will use a plugin in VS Code. So the only time I use VS Code is for doing step functions because this plugin has like an IntelliSense auto-completion function. So you don't have to type it all out. It'll kind of fill it out kind of half for you. And then it's rendering the graph kind of on the side pane what, so you can see what it looks like as you're going. So it's, it's the same sort of logic, right? It's just giving you tools and technologies to help move things along. Well, I might be tempted to have a go at it myself because uh, I don't think I've ever written a single line of code. Probably shouldn't own up to that, should I, really? But, uh, <laughs> you know, d done the odd bit of command line here and there. But, uh, you know, maybe this will get me writing apps. I just need to think what, what app I need to write, I suppose. Uh, it's all very well having the tools, but you need to come up with the ideas as well. Um, so, uh, anyway, let's ideas, move on. From... <laughs> yeah, yeah, fluffy ideas, um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much concrete ideas. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's move on from Application Composer um, to another test for my pop filter. So let's uh, read this massive headline, uh, which is another article in a headline, as we described before. But uh, Amazon EventBridge Pipes supports point-to-point -point integrations between event producers and consumers. That's a bit of a mouthful, and uh, I definitely practiced that one before the recording. Um, but uh, so it's the... Um, the event bridge pipes um, is the mm. new feature. Um, so tell us, uh, you know, we've spoken a bit about event bridge um, on previous episodes, um, but tell us, John, about event bridge pipes and uh, what this new feature uh, is going to enable for people. Good plumbing, good quality plumbing, which is, I suppose, the point of the metaphor. So, event bridge, as I've said in a couple of previous episodes, but if you're new to the podcast, here's the TLDR version or the TL didn't listen version. Um, EventBridge is basically an event bus that most things put application metrics on. The example I like to use is um, Amazon's AWS's uh, transcoding service, Elemental Media Convert, because I've used that before, and this that's the example I like to use. Once you finish a transcoding job, it puts a message onto EventBridge to say, I finished my transcoding job. Here's where the file is. Here's where you've put the new file. I'm done. And then you can subscribe to EventBridge to have something kind of hoover that up, usually a Lambda, just to do something with that information to say, great, yes, you finished your transcoding, so now I'm going to move my transcoded files to where they're going to be served from, or I'm going to generate a URL for them, or I'm going to update the database to say that they're available. So that's the example I like to use. EventBridge historically has had problems in that you have to have like a piece of middleware, usually a Lambda, subscribed to that um, event bus to then go and do something with it. So say you wanted to kick off a step function in response to your transcoding job, for instance, being finished. You would have to have a Lambda listening to EventBridge, which would then have to do a little bit of processing and then send a message off to the step function, and then the step function will have to go off and run. So you've got this little bit of silly middleware that you just sort of couldn't help, um, which is annoying, it's something you have to maintain, something you have to monitor, something you have to write. And yeah, it's probably only a dozen lines of code, but it's a pain. And again, another example of that is if um, you want a notification of something being put in an S3 bucket, because it supports bucket notifications, you have the S3 bucket put a message either into SNS or into SQS directly, and then you have something subscribed to the end of either the SNS topic or the SQS queue, which again is a bit of a pain, and then that Lambda or that server or whatever has to go off and do something before kicking off the rest of the workflow. What EventBridge Pipes is doing is it's cutting that glue code out. So one of the examples that they use 
Um, not in this article, but if you kind of dig in through um, like the sub articles that they link to, which again is very much a, a feature of InfoQ articles. It's just lots of links to other things. I should write for them, really. Is um, you should. <laughs> is uh, what, what, what it's doing is it's cutting out this glue code, yeah? Is EventBridge is doing a thing, sending it to a pipe, and then that pipe is going directly to whatever it is you want to trigger. So you don't have to have that lambda in the middle listening to EventBridge events. It goes into the pipe and you say, for these types of events, I want you to trigger this step function. So you're cutting out that annoying piece of glue code. And again, it's more of that undifferentiated heavy lifting that AWS is taking away. Granted, this isn't particularly heavy lifting, but it is very undifferentiated because you're just having to do it a lot. And it becomes really annoying in a particularly big distributed architecture. So something you'll be using? If I can help it, yeah. Uh, I know we've got a serverless project up and coming, so I will probably end up making use of this because I know the customer does have a few things that are triggered based on other things finishing. So I, I can see this happening. Cool. Yeah, it's always good to know that uh, we're taking advantage of the latest technologies. Anything else to say on that one, John, or should we skip on to the next one? I skip on to the next one because I just accidentally closed the article. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of InfoQ this week, isn't it? This is our third InfoQ article, yeah. So uh, we like InfoQ, or at least the search engine that we use to uh, <laughs> find our articles likes InfoQ. So uh, yeah. Google likes InfoQ. Their SEO is on yeah. point. Absolutely, yeah. That's another reason you should write for them, John. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another, another serverless article. Um, this one is about enhanced serverless development with Terraform and AWS SAM. Uh, SAM, of course, being the serverless application model. We've spoken about SAM on the podcast before. Um, so uh, what's new now um, with uh, this particular announcement? You remember the TLA? Oh, I'm proud. I'm so proud. <laughs> I've built my career on remembering TLAs. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've built mine on actually having to understand how they work. I, yeah, I think no, I know I've... who I'd rather be. <laughs> Yeah, I just remember them, and then I uh, employ people like you to uh, to understand how they work. So. Okay, let's start with a couple of quick definitions, again, for new listeners. So Terraform is a way of writing um, code that provisions infrastructure. So basically anything in AWS, it also works with Azure and GCP and non-cloud things as well. Like I've done stuff with Datadog with it. You can do stuff with Status Cake and Pingdom and all sorts with it. It's pretty cool. SAM, serverless application model, is a transform layer on top of cloud formation, which just obfuscates and takes away kind of the nasty bits of deploying serverless apps. Case in point being lambdas. Uh, you have to deploy a lambda from a zip file, and the recommendation is you do that, or, or a Docker image actually, but we'll skip over that for the minute. And the recommendation is, recommendation is you do that via an S3 bucket. So you have to zip your code, put it in an S3 bucket, and then tell the lambda service where the S3 bucket is so it can go and get it. Sam kind of does all that for you. You just kind of point to your code on disk and it kind of zips it all up and uploads it and keeps an MD5 hash so that it's only redeploying when it's changed. Yeah. So it's taking away all kind of the nasty bits. And it does a lot of kind of gluing things together for you as well, um, hooking things together. So you can just say in a Sam resource, this uh, Lambda has an entry point of this API gateway and it will go off and create the API and stuff for you as well, which is really handy. Cool. Right. Enhanced serverless development with Terraform and Sam point of the article this is 
AWS realising that people want to use a tool that they didn't build, which is, I think that's personal growth. (laughs) (laughs) So Sam has this really cool feature called Local Invoke, because if you've ever done any work with serverless anything, it's really hard to kind of dev and test it locally because you don't have a full copy of AWS on your machine. I certainly hope you don't because that would just melt anything. Um, but you don't have a full copy of the service on your machine, and it's really hard to kind of mock things out and stub things out and write unit tests and all that jazz to the extent that most startups that I've worked in that have not that have built serverless architectures have kind of not bothered. They've done a few unit tests for just kind of making sure that inputs and outputs will work as expected, and that's it. No integration tests or anything like that. It's you put it up in the cloud, and then you kind of just test it. It's okay, it works, but it's not kind of recommended practice, if you like. But it does mean you don't have to work out how to write unit tests, which I I don't like doing, because <laughs> they're always awkward. It's like, why would I mock this out? I can just test it, but okay. Historically, with SAM, you had to, in order to use Local Invoke, you had to build and package it with SAM itself, right? Which I don't mind. I haven't minded, because I prefer using that for Lambdas. But, you know, you might have a standard that says you want to use Terraform. Cool. This is now saying that if it's been defined in Terraform and already deployed to your system, you can still use SAM to do local testing, which is great. It's this nice little halfway house that says you don't have to use SAM for everything. You don't really have to um, write all the CloudFormation templates for SAM to understand what it looks like. You just write an extra resource in Terraform and the CR, uh, and the SAM CLI will work out kind of what it is and it'll do its local builds and it'll run it up in a Docker container on your machine for you and you can test it locally, which is brilliant because like I say, this is personal growth from AWS because you can now use their tool for just the little bit that you actually want it for rather than having to use it for the whole thing, which is great. Awesome. We've seen a lot of that kind of growth, I think, um, you know, embracing third party tools, but also um, getting involved more in, in open source projects, contributing back more to open source projects, which uh, something AWS was criticized for in the, in, in the earlier years. Um, so uh, great to see that uh, that growth occurring. Um, something I meant to mention at the beginning of the podcast, which has got nothing to do with serverless um, or uh, or AWS, in fact, but uh, I wanted to offer an apology for the terrible audio quality in episode nine. <laughs> uh, if anybody had listened to episode nine and is now listening to episode 10, um, I selected the wrong microphone. So I have this very expensive microphone in front of me here, which uh, has great audio quality. Last week, um, the it was the webcam that was picking up Well, as I'm talking about as I'm talking oh. about audio quality, I nudged the mute button. Uh, on... <laughs> I, I was trying. I was trying to so, say uh, that. Yeah. Like, well, nothing's picking you up now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. I have just discovered though that spacebar equals mute. So that's uh, a useful feature uh, to to have learned for the future. Um, We're going to have uh, to spend some more money on your kit, aren't we, and get you like a stream deck or something. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen those. They look great. I need to have yeah, one of those do, on my desk. I, I don't know what it does, but uh, yeah, it looks great. You know, it's got flashy customizable, lights on it. Yeah, customizable knobs. I feel buttons like a, that you can push yeah. them and it does things. I feel like a proper radio DJ with one of those on my desk. So. Now you're showing your age. Twitch streamer, yeah. you mean. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's one of those? <laughs> I, know, I, know, I, I, I know we're streaming. I do have a bit of a Twitch, but uh, yeah, it's no need to be rude. 
Uh, <laughs> well, you should know what Twitch is. Amazon owns it. I do know what Twitch is. Yeah, I was. Uh, if you've got a Prime membership, you can actually get um, Twitch access too for nothing. I actually cool. did once watch a Twitch stream. Um, it was Amazon, though. It was someone at Amazon uh, streaming an event, um, and uh, that was the only way to consume it. So uh, I have Didn't never they, um, ever stream lots of reinvent on Twitch. Possibly. That's not how I accessed it, but uh, I'm sure they did. Uh, but uh, I can safely say I've never watched someone playing a computer game um, in my life. Have you ever yeah. played a computer uh, uh, game? <laughs> yes, I used to play lots of computer games, but uh, I've grown out of that now. So, uh, again, showing my age. <laughs> yeah, we're not having any of that growing out of it. I've, I've been a gamer since I was in my teens, and I still game massively now. Like, you don't yeah, grow a lot out of, of it. I, I'm a generation older than you, so you might grow out of it. That's not going to happen. <laughs> the amount of money I spend on it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, you've got to get the return on investment. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's get back to serverless, shall we, in AWS, which is what this podcast is all about. So um, are we done with uh, Terraform and Sam? Should we skip on to the final article for this week? Yeah, let's do the last one. So the final article we've picked on this week is about securing Lambda function URLs using Amazon Cognito, CloudFront, and AWS Web Application Firewall. Um, so, uh, yeah, what do you got to say about this one, John? Uh, um, <laughs> I picked this one because I didn't want to talk about any of the the, the business articles because they're all a bit boring. Um, <laughs> right. Let's start from the beginning. Again, a few definitions. So, lambdas, we know what lambdas are, function as a service. Cognito, that is Amazon's, AWS's um, user authentication and identification service, and it can do external users for access to your apps and it can do access to internal IAM resources as well. Great, we like that, very good. CloudFront, that's a CDN, content delivery network, just lots of caches, brilliant, we like that. That has a few kind of cool things around um, times to live in the cache and signed URLs and signed cookies so that you can restrict access to things, great, wonderful. And WAF, Web Application Firewall, another TLA, and that's that's a firewall. It's a managed firewall service that, you know, you're seeing people doing like SQL injection attacks or DDoSs or whatever, and it will just swat them. Great, wonderful, brilliant. We like all of those. Lambdas have um, function URLs, or they can have them if you turn them on, uh, which is a dedicated HTTPS endpoint for calling that function from outside of AWS. So before they existed, the only way you could call a Lambda function from outside was via um, a public URL, via API Gateway, the obvious example, or an application load balancer being another one, uh, or, you know, something like that. Those are the kind of the two that come to mind. Function URLs kind of cut that out so you don't have to put that extra bit of kit in the middle, so you can just call them directly, which if you want to, fine. I personally wouldn't recommend it because the authentication is not amazing. Uh, if you use something like API Gateway, you get it kind of built in, which is much better, but it is what it is. Now, what this is talking about is using Cognito user pools, which user pools are the ones that authenticate for resources to access to your app, identity pools being access to services. Um, CloudFront and WAF, so that you can then have lots of global access and secure it and then you have the website that's public facing that calls your lambda yeah the example that they've used is like a sign-in so your website hosted in amplify you then log in cognito returns an auth code that auth code then talks back to waf which talks back to cloudfront which then talks to lambda to validate the token and then let you in so that's kind of what this is doing. This is building a whole authentication flow around public URLs, um, public Lambda functions, 
just I think as an example of how you can use it. This is this is not something I would recommend building um, unless you're trying to get familiar with the technologies. Like a large number of these blogs, to be honest, it's here's how you can use it so you can kind of learn how it works. But for this particular example, I would recommend just staying with um, API Gateway and just using the built-in JSON auth or using the built-in Cognito auth because it's there and it's done and it does it better than you can do it yourself. But yeah, this is this is useful if you want to learn how these things kind of all hang together. So probably not one that you're going to use then by the sound of things. No, not if I can help it, no. Like I say... Um, if you if you need to authenticate with Cognito, API Gateway has got that as an option kind of built in, which is great. We like that. Uh, I don't know if it integrates with WAF automatically or not, but it certainly can. Um, and then, you know, CloudFront being CloudFront, whatever. And then it just talks to a Lambda. So I probably wouldn't use this. But like I say, this is, this is a good article, I think. Is this on their learning article or is this on their... It's on the compute blog, so I don't know if this yeah. is like a, a learning exercise type article or not, but it feels like it. Fair enough. Cool. Okay, well, that uh, brings us neatly to the end of our time this week. So uh, thanks a lot for your insights there, John. Um, so that brings us to the end of episode 10. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please like it, give us a review. Um, we are available on all major podcast platforms. Um, so uh, please uh, share and, and tell your friends if you think they might be interested in listening. Um, so uh, that's all from us this week. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with episode 11. <laughs>